Amen. We are jumping back into our sermon series, going through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we will be in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. The Gospel of Mark provides us with a wonderful opportunity to know God in Jesus Christ. We are able to learn about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The Gospel of Mark also provides us with a good opportunity to grow as followers of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark has much to teach us about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, of course, in the Gospels, the cross looms large. The cross of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, play a significant role in the Gospels. This morning, we are going to see the significance of the cross as it relates to how we follow Jesus. We are going to see how the cross shapes our discipleship. So let's read together. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. After the event where Jesus cast out the demon from the young man, which we read about last week, he continued to travel with his disciples. We read that he went on from there and passed through Galilee. The direction of his travel was intentional. He knew where he needed to go. He was focused on fulfilling his purpose. You see, by this point, he had set his face to Jerusalem. The events that we read about here and the events that we, will, we read about through chapter 10 took place on the way to Jerusalem. 
Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew the opposition he would face. He knew the hostility that would be thrown at him. He knew how he would die. But he did not avoid Jerusalem. He did not try to get around it. Instead, he set his face to Jerusalem. But as he traveled through Galilee, he wanted to keep his presence a secret. He probably wanted to do so in order to focus on where he was going without being hindered by large crowds. And he wanted to focus on teaching his disciples. He needed to teach them how he, could, he would accomplish his work as the Christ. And he wanted to teach them what it means to follow him as one of his disciples. With that in mind, he took the opportunity with his disciples to tell them once again what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus told his disciples beforehand what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He told them that he was going to be killed, but that also he was going to rise again. He told them what would happen beforehand to prepare them. He told them what would happen beforehand so that after everything had happened, they would have assurance that what had happened was according to God's will. But this was not the first time he told them what would happen. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus, again, was preparing them for what was coming. But here in chapter 9, he used slightly different language. He said the Son, uh, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. The subject is concealed in the way that Jesus said this. He didn't say explicitly who was doing the delivering. He said he is going to be delivered. Some scholars will refer to this as the divine passive. It's referred to as the divine passive because the understanding is that God is the one who is delivering Jesus up to be killed. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, Peter preached a sermon to a large crowd on the day of Pentecost. In that sermon, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why is this important? Why does this matter? It's important because it reminds us of what God has done for us because he loves us. What happened to Jesus was not unplanned. It was not an accident. It was not a bad set of circumstances. In John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have all sinned against God. God is our creator. He made us in his image. We have all sinned against him. We all deserve punishment. If God gave us what we deserve, we would all get hell. But God in his loving kindness has provided a way 
for us to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to him that we might enjoy eternal life in his glorious kingdom. And he did so by giving us Jesus, by delivering up Jesus to be killed, to be crucified. God planned this and God executed this because of his great love for us. If you're not a Christian, the thing that we want you to know more than anything is that God has provided a way for you to know him and to have a relationship with him whereby you enjoy his love for all of eternity. And he did so by providing Jesus. And the good news is that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved. If you're not a Christian, our hope, our desire, our prayer for you is that you will repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved. Do not wait another day. Let today be the day of your salvation. Jesus was delivered up for our sake because God loves sinners like you and me. Jesus would accomplish his work as the Christ through his death and resurrection. In verse 32, we see that even after Jesus told them directly and specifically what was going to happen to him, the disciples did not understand the saying. We can understand why they didn't understand the parables. Those could be a little bit challenging if you're hearing them for the first time. But here, Jesus is speaking very directly and specifically, yet they still don't get it. I'm going to die and rise again. I don't get that. What do you mean? That doesn't make sense. They didn't understand it. They were slow to understand. There was still a little bit of spiritual dullness, even though they had followed Jesus for coming on three years. And we see the spiritual dullness of the disciples highlighted in verses 33 through 34. As they were traveling on the road, they had an argument among themselves. They must have thought they were out of earshot of Jesus. They, mo- they must have thought that he, didn't, he wasn't hearing what was going on with their argument. And of course, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. I don't know about you, but I wish I could hear the particulars of each man's argument as to why he was the greatest, but really just so I could feel better about myself. It's like, oh wow, Matthew, you said that out loud. Okay, guess I'm not the only arrogant jerk following Jesus. Let's do this. But even though they didn't answer Jesus, he knew what they had been arguing about. He knew what they were arguing about, and he needed to address the heart problem that was common among the disciples. The heart problem he addressed was not only common among the disciples, but among all of humanity. We have a desire within us to receive praise and recognition from man. We have a desire to make a name for ourselves. We want to receive honor and glory. We want to be great, and we want people to recognize our greatness. This is evidence of our rebellion against God. You see, God is the one who made us in his image to show forth his glory, to make much of him. We were created in the image of God to display the greatness of God. And so when we want to be great, we are taking what rightfully belongs to God. We are trying to steal from God what only belongs to Him, namely His glory and His greatness. 
We are living in a way that's contrary to the purpose that God created us. When the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest, they were living in a way that was contrary to God's plan, to God's design. They were rebelling against Him. The way of the world is to make much of ourselves. The argument between the disciples reflected the ways of the world, but it afforded Jesus the opportunity to teach them about following him. In the rest of our passage, we learn several valuable lessons regarding being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus taught them that following him meant rejecting the ways of this world and embracing the ways of his kingdom. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I think some of us have heard this enough times that we can read this and readily agree without allowing the truth to penetrate our hearts. Perhaps it's helpful to consider how this would have hit the disciples when they first heard this. They had been following Jesus for close to three years. They had heard his profound teaching. They had seen the crowds gather. They had seen firsthand his extraordinary miracles. They had come to believe that he was the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed king. And here they were in his inner circle. They had visions of greatness. They were on the up and up. Moreover, being a servant in that culture was not respectable. It was not commendable. It was not honorable. It was not desirable. Someone who had the role of a servant was pitied. And Jesus told them, you need to become a servant. You need to humble yourself. He told them to give up the ways of the world. Give it all up. Give up these selfish ambitions and pursuits. Give up working to receive praise from man. Give up self-promotion. Give up thinking you are more important or significant than others. Give it all up because we don't live for this world. We live for the kingdom of God. Greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by humility and servitude. So instead of seeking to be first, humble yourself and seek to become a servant of others. Consider others more significant than yourself. Put the needs of others before your own. Brothers and sisters, this is something we should be eager to do, for this is what Jesus has done for us. Our motivation and our power to humble ourselves and become servants comes from Him. It doesn't take power to promote yourself. It doesn't take power to be prideful, that comes naturally to us. But it does take power to humble yourself, to become a servant to others. It takes great power, and that power can only come from Jesus. We are going to see Jesus call his disciples to servitude again toward the end of chapter 10. There he provided the basis for why they should serve. In Mark 10, 45, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you understand that we will never humble ourselves to the extent that Jesus humbled himself? There's no possible way. Jesus humbled himself for our sake far more, immeasurably more, than any person will ever have to humble themselves. He 
humbled himself, the king of kings, the king of glory, the creator of everyone and everything, humbled himself and became a servant of sinful people who had rejected him. He came to serve sinful humanity. He took on the role of a servant, even giving up his life so that he could ransom us, so that he could rescue us, so he could save us. And he is the one who empowers us to be humble and to serve. It's his power, the power of the one who humbled himself far more than we ever will. His power is at work in us so that we might humble ourselves and be servants to others. Jesus calls us to humble ourselves and be servants of all. He used an illustration in order to drive home this point. He brought a child into their midst. He said, whoever receives a child like this receives me. Children were not held in high esteem. Giving their time and energy to children would not be a good way for Jewish men to gain respect and make a name for themselves among their peers if they wanted to and impress other men of high standing. Giving their time and energy to serving children would not be something that would help them to that end. Children are viewed as not having arrived and probably considered last in terms of social order. In other words, it would be easy and natural for men who are striving for status and recognition to ignore and disregard children. But Jesus taught them a different way. He taught them that receiving children, loving children, investing in children, teaching children was a good, God-glorifying use of their time and energy. We are a church filled with wonderful children. God has blessed us with wonderful children. And it is a good use of our time, our energy, our resources to shepherd them to teach them, to point them to Jesus. When we spend time investing in children, we are pleasing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is good and pleasing in his sight. But the point of the illustration was not simply to encourage us to spend time with children. Jesus was impressing on them, do not think that you are too important to spend time or energy or resources with others whom the world might consider to be less important or unimportant. Don't think that way. Don't think that you're so important that you don't have time for those whom the world might consider unimportant. Instead, humble yourself. Serve them. Receive them. Friends, in this life, we will always struggle with the desire to make a name for ourselves, whether in subtle ways or overt ways. To make things more difficult, we live in a culture that often encourages us to make much of ourselves. But Jesus calls us to pursue something else, to desire other things, and to live a different way. The first thing we learn about discipleship is that followers of Jesus are called to be servants of all. Let me ask you this question. In what ways is the Lord calling you to humble yourself and become a servant to others. In what ways is God calling you to do this in your daily life with the people whom he's placed in your life? 
How is God calling you to do this here and now? Our passage continues with a concern raised by the disciples. But their concern seems to be, come from a place of jealousy. They had witnessed another guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And because he wasn't part of their inner circle, they tried to shut him down. They tried to say, hey, you can't do that. That's our thing. And say, they told Jesus what had happened. And Jesus corrected them. And in correcting them, he taught things that are helpful for us in understanding the nature of discipleship. Jesus taught them that who, anyone who is not against us is for us. So when the disciples saw the unknown exorcist cast out a demon, they said, you can't do that. You see, they had this exclusive view of discipleship. They're like, we're in this clique. We're in this group. You're not. Therefore, you can't do the things that Jesus told us to do. But Jesus had a more inclusive view of discipleship. Not inclusive in the sense that it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. As long as you say you're a Christian, you're a Christian. He was not saying that. But he had a more inclusive view in the sense that anyone who was operating from a true place of faith in Jesus was to be welcomed as one of his disciples. Everyone who has faith in Jesus will be received as a disciple and welcomed into God's glorious kingdom and should therefore be encouraged to do the works of Jesus, to carry on his ministry. The ministry of Jesus was not reserved for a select few. The faith of the unknown exorcist was demonstrated through his actions. At some point in time, he heard Jesus teach and preach. At some point in time, he heard this, and he responded in faith. At some point in time, he came to believe that Jesus truly was sent from God, and that his mission including defeating, uh, defeating Satan and his demons. At some point in time, he believed that Jesus had the power and authority to do this. At some point in time, he believed that it was important for him to participate in Jesus' work, to follow in his footsteps, to carry on, to expand his ministry. His faith was demonstrated in his actions. And as followers of Jesus, our faith is demonstrated in our actions. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. And our faith mani manifests itself in a wide variety of good works. Lest we are tempted to think that our faith is only demonstrated through extraordinary deeds, such as casting out a demon, Jesus said, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, faith in Jesus is not only evident in the powerful casting out of a demon, but also in a simple act of hospitality, such as giving a thirsty person a cup of cold water for the sake of Christ. What wonderful encouragement we are given here. Jesus delights in us when we serve him in his name. Whether it's a simple deed such as giving someone a cup of cold water or an extraordinary deed such as casting out a demon. I love how Jesus goes to the cup of water. They're talking about this man casting out a demon, which of course is extraordinary, which of course amazes people and blows their minds. He's like, yeah, that's great. But so is just doing the most simple thing you can think of. Giving someone a cup of water. He sees this. He's pleased with this. 
And he delights to reward us when we do this in his name. Brothers and sisters, when you serve Jesus from a place of faith, he sees you. Your deeds are not insignificant to him. They are not small. They are not unimportant in his eyes. He sees them. He delights in them. He rejoices to reward you for serving him in his name. What is great about this unknown man who cast out the demon was that he took an active role in the ministry of Jesus. He was not merely a consumer. He did not believe that the ministry of Jesus was reserved for a select few. He took an active role as a minister of the gospel. He saw what Jesus did. He understood that it was good and right. He wanted to see this ministry expand. So he said, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to try to expand his ministry. This is a commendable example for us because each one of us are called to be ministers of the gospel. Every single one of us is called to take an active role in the ministry of Jesus. We don't want to believe that ministry is reserved for a select few. We are called to take an active role in the ministry of Jesus. We are called to demonstrate our faith through our deeds in the name of Jesus for the sake of Jesus. And when we do so, he is pleased and he rewards us. So the second thing we see is a disciple is one who does good works in the name of Jesus. Someone who takes an active role in the ministry of Jesus. In verse 42, Jesus went on to warn against cause, causing others to sin. Earlier in our passage, Jesus encouraged his disciples to receive lowly persons in his name. But Jesus not only encouraged his disciples to welcome the lowly, he also warned them against causing them to stumble. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus used severe language, very severe language to issue this strong warning. And the warning really applies to anyone who would cause a child or a new Christian, or a vulnerable person to sin or turn away from following the Lord. Jesus is warning us, don't do anything to turn someone away from following Jesus. Do not be a stumbling block to another person believing and following Jesus. It will be bad for you if you do this, to do so is an egregious offense against the Lord. So the third thing we see is that a disciple does not cause a lowly person to sin, but ra rather gladly receives them. In verse 43, Jesus turned his attention from not causing another to sin to how a disciple should deal with sin in his or her own life. And what is central to his teaching regarding to how we are to deal with sin in our own life is the value of eternal life with God in his kingdom. When we rightly value eternal life with God in his kingdom, we will know how we are to understand and deal with our sin. Again, listen carefully to what he said. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Brothers and sisters, do not miss this. Jesus commanded us to deal with our sin in a radical way because how we deal with our sin has radical consequences. He said, if your hand, eye, or foot cause you to sin, then just get rid of them. They're not worth it. As valuable as each of these members of your body is, they are not worth the price of your soul. It's better to lose these things than to spend eternity in hell apart from God. He urges us to consider the eternal significance of the consequences. On the one hand, there is eternal life with God through Jesus Christ in his glorious kingdom. And on, the other, on the other hand, there is eternity in hell separated from him where there will be eternal torment. He says, understand what's at stake. Understand the weight of this. In light of this, deal radically with your sin. You see, a disciple of Jesus rightly values the kingdom of God far more than anyone or anything else. We value the kingdom of God so highly that we deal radically with our sin, knowing that our sin is incompatible with his kingdom. Knowing that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Brothers and sisters, we cannot make peace with our sin. We cannot take our sin lightly. We cannot downplay it. We cannot be passive with our sin. If we are passive with our sin, our sin will get the best of us. We must deal radically with our sin. We must put it to death. The final thing we see is that a disciple is one who deals radically with his or her own sin. Jesus went to the cross for our sake. Because of his great love for us, he became a servant. He humbled himself far more than we ever will because of his love for us that he might save us. And in light of this, we are to allow that truth, the truth of the cross, to shape our understanding of discipleship, to help us grow as followers of Jesus. In light of what Christ has done for us at the cross, we must humble ourselves and become servants to others. We must actively take a, a role in the ministry of Jesus, doing good deeds in his name for his glory, knowing that this is pleasing in his sight. We must be careful not to cause anyone else to stumble or sin, and we must deal radically with our own sin. As we do this, we will grow as followers of Jesus. We will become more like him, and we will rightly bring glory to his name. So let's pray that the Holy Spirit will be at work in us to this end, that we will be followers of Jesus, that our discipleship will be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your extraordinary plan of salvation that you accomplished in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you gave us Jesus. You delivered him up to be crucified for our sake. And Jesus, we thank you that you are one to humble yourself, become a servant of all, that you might ransom our lives, though we have sinned against you. You are awesome. You are worthy of all praise. You are the God of our salvation. We pray that we will be faithful followers of you. We pray that our discipleship will be shaped by the cross. We pray you'd help us to become more and more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.